buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny Episode 60. Today we're going to chat with Michael Bain, make a prank call about a Halloween costume, and talk about the KE Arm Sear Link Technology Trigger. Today's panel is Sean Heron and I'm Ava Flannell. And today uh, it, it is cold in Colorado. I it know, is. I know we don't like to talk about the weather, but it's all I can think about is how cold I am. I just didn't realize that we already got to that point where we have to talk about the weather. No, it's all. Are we? Are you bored? No, my hands are just cold. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what's going on right now. Um, before- all right. Well, let's just talk about something that's not so boring, and that's Manicore Arms. I want to talk about the Scorpion Evo bullpup again. And we've been talking about it a lot, but there's a reason for that because we're pretty super excited about it. So they, they announced it at the bullpup shoot in Mount Carroll, Illinois a few weeks ago. And we, we have them on the way. One of the cool things is when you put it all together, Ava, you don't actually have to do any permanent modifications to the firearm, which I think is huge because you can buy the kit, you can buy the firearm and you can have it in whatever, whatever, I don't know, whatever, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, basically there's no permanent changes. So yeah. you can decide whether you want to have the carbine or if you want it, the bullpup. But you could easily do one or the other. Configuration. That's the word I was looking for. You can have it in whatever configuration you want. That's awesome. You can go to manicorearms.com. It'll be available very very soon through them and CZ USA and distributors all over the country. But if you buy from manicorearms.com, Ava, they don't have to pay full price. Nope. If you use the code GUNFUNNY15, that gets you 15% off. Go check them out. Learn the things you never knew on Deconstructing the Industry. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. I know you're super busy, so we appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day. What are your current titles and roles for people who don't know? (laughs) Uh, King of all media? No, uh, that's already (laughs) taken. I am executive producer for Outdoor Channel. My flagship show, Shooting Gallery, is filming its 19th season, making it the most successful shooting show ever. Uh, also executive producer at The Best Defense, which we're now filming our ninth se- or, I'm sorry, our 11th season. Executive producer with Gun Stories with Joe Montagna, where we're in our ninth season. Uh, Internet Project, Shooting Gallery Online, second year. My, and my, and my, and my own podcast, Downrange Radio, which is always the tail that wags the dog. 587 weeks of 45 minutes a week. So other than that, I'm just hanging out. Just hanging out <laughs> doing stuff. That's pretty awesome. How'd you get involved in, in, uh, the, the video and TV stuff? Uh, largely by accident, which is how I, as, now that I've been in it a while, I discovered that that's how everybody got into it. Uh, I was a journalist. I'm, I'm the only rock critic from Rolling Stone that ever ended up here. I'm pretty sure of that. But, um, I was doing journalism, writing a lot of stuff. A friend of mine, uh, 17, 18 years ago, took a consulting job with Outdoor Channel, and they wanted to do a shooting show. And my friend's a hunter, and he said, call Michael. Michael knows about that stuff. And I did, and I set up a show and everything really pretty poorly, and it all fell through. And at the very last minute, the president of the company is sitting there and says, we're not going to do this show. And it was Friday afternoon. I said, dude, because everybody's dude. I said, dude, give me till Monday morning, and I will bring you a shooting show. And he goes, do you have any idea how shows are made? I said, no, for all I know, gnomes make them. <laughs> he goes, nope, nobody from L.A. would ever say that. I said, not from L.A. And he goes, okay. So Monday morning I go in, I 
pitched this whole show, Shooting Gallery, the Duck logo, the whole package, and uh, they all applaud. They say, you give great presentations. Thank you. That's wonderful. And and the president of the company said, who's going to host this hypothetical show of yours? And I said, me? He goes, you ever hosted anything in your entire life? I said, no. He goes, tell you what, I'll give you four episodes. Go hang yourself. Uh, he's been gone for years. I'm still here. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty great. What what was in your presentation? You think that wowed him? It was funny. Mm. And if, if you if you watch, um, you know, Outdoor and Sportsman's Channel, uh, Outdoor Sportsman's Group, which owns Outdoor Channel, actually owns everything in the world: Sportsman's Channel, the gun magazines, blah blah. Funny is not a word you automatically associate with a shooting show. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I got to think. Well, a lot of this stuff is funny, and, and certainly it's fun. I mean, I'm I'm not the tactical guy. Although, like I said, in Sims, I'd probably kill more cops than anybody I know. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, I don't have any 5'11 clothing. So I think humor is is wildly overlooked in uh, what we might refer to as the gun culture. And it shouldn't be. I mean, mm. come on. This is fun. And sometimes this stuff is profoundly weird. It is. It is. And we love to have fun. And I think that that's what really resonates with audiences. <laughs> Have you heard from listeners, viewers, all that kind of stuff, uh, that that's something they enjoy about the things that you do? I, I have. I have repeatedly. And, and the other thing, and I'm, I'm sure you guys are already seeing this with, with what you're doing, is a humor humor gives you a connection with your listeners and viewers that you can't get any other way. Because I, I think through humor, um, your listeners, your viewers go, you know what? This guy's having fun, and a lot of times he's not taking it seriously. And the strength of that is then when I have to do something where I, I take something seriously, the viewers understand that that it's not a fake sincerity. I mean, just an example. Um, I once wanted to explain the Second Amendment in a way that that everyone would understand, simple, easy to understand terms, right? So I went to Auschwitz. And uh, I filmed under the guard towers at Auschwitz to explain the Second Amendment. The viewers knew I was deadly serious then. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the fact that the show is relatively lighthearted on, on an average basis gives any serious topic a leg up, if you will, where people go like, wow, you know, he's he's telling us something that we need to know here. So and plus I'm. As you know, I'm, I'm relatively easy to find. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sometimes way too easy to find. But, uh, so you have a huge backlog of, of those episodes. You've been doing it for a very long time. Was there an episode or a situation that kind of stood out amongst uh, and, and above everything else? Oh, gosh, so many. I, I was once almost shot by a Russian woman with a uh, uh, with an AK-74, <laughs> which did actually put the fear in me there at uh, – Never, imagine. never go to a range in Eastern Europe with a woman with, with a Kalashnikov. Don't do it. <laughs> it just doesn't come out well. Hold on. I'm writing uh, that down. <laughs> <laughs> it's like worldly tips to live by. But no, I mean, I, I think a, a lot of, a lot of the episodes, you know, we've kind of been around the world and, and, uh, on a lot of shows and some, oh, well, here's the one, my absolute favorite thing in the whole world. The greatest firearms collection on earth is in England. And it's the property of the Ministry Defense of Defense in England. It's the uh, it's called the Pattern Room, and basically it's the, the English government 
military uh, military's reference collection of firearms and it started like 18 16 8, 31 something like that James II James II goes we need a copy of every single thing that can kill an Englishman and because they're Brits and like about three quarter crazy they've been collecting every single thing that can kill an Englishman since 1631 and they're all in very closed uh, very secure facilities and essentially, I spent three or four years badgering my way into it. And uh, it was really cool because it is all the guns on earth. They have one of every iteration of every firearm ever made. Not just a copy of an M16, but a prototype, the production prototype, version one, version two, version three, version four. And uh, it took a lot to get into that room. And they gave me only a very limited time to film in there. And... You kind of wish I got, give me a month. Right. You know? <laughs> right. How do you, how do you get everything done? Oh, we're just getting ready to walk out. And, and one of the curators there goes, Oh, we haven't shown you the OSS assassination weapons from World War II. Wow. I said, you, I said, you have those? And they go, all of them. Wow. Go, Holy cow. And they start pulling this stuff out. And I'm like, huh, you have a shoe with a knife in it. <laughs> and, and they're like, Ian Fleming spent a lot of time in this room. And I said, okay. <laughs> but yeah, stuff like that is just super. Um, four, uh, three months ago, I was at the Long Room in Purdy, which at Purdy in, in London. And the Long Room is like the mother church of British gun making. I was sitting at this desk in the conference room, big, classic, old school British conference room. And the, the, one of their, their, uh, one of their museum guys came through and said, that's where Eisenhower sat when he was planning D-Day. I said, you're going to have to back up on that. I mean, I got a pretty good idea of World War II history, but you're, I don't understand what you're talking about. And he goes, Churchill was afraid of Nazi spies. So he and Eisenhower got together and thought, where's the one place in London that the Nazi spies won't think it's unusual for Allied officers to go into? And Churchill said, how about the most famous gun store in the world? And so they have letters from Eisenhower and stuff like that because D-Day was, in fact, planned in the long room at Purdy. So, I mean, stuff like that to me is just super because uh, <laughs> I'm a gun nerd. Yeah, That's kinda, definitely. Sounds like a lot of great stuff. So you've been involved in a lot of shooting sports. In fact, you've, you know, you've helped create several. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, it's, in some cases, it's right place at right time. I, you know, I come out of Cooper. <laughs> you know, I come out of, I'm come out of that group of people in, in, uh, the mid seventies that kind of followed in the first footsteps of Colonel Jeff Cooper. So, mm-hmm. uh, I was at the, uh, the inaugural founding meeting of the United States Practical Shooting Association, which we actually chose that title at that meeting. And, uh, you know, we, we divided the country into regions and we figured out how to do the rules. And interestingly enough, that meeting was at a strip joint in Orlando called the Dollhouse. <laughs> and, uh, after a big match in Florida and we were so pathetic. This is kind of sad in a me too, you know, hashtag me too world, but we sat there with our yellow pads planning out the USPSA and we were so pathetic and so poor at that point that the strippers brought us pitchers of beer. <laughs> but, uh, but I did that and, you know, I was one of the uh, original people for the National Range Officer Institute, something I'm really proud of that we put together. Uh, later, Bill Wilson tapped me to help IDPA and to kind of bring IDPA to the western part of the United States. My IDPA number is A0009. Oh, wow. So I worked in IDPA for a while for Billy and kind of, yeah, I drift off, 
And uh, you know, about 10, 12 years ago, myself, Ken Jorgensen, and the late Nelson Diamond, Ken was at Ruger at the time, we said we really need a sport for Rimfire because there isn't one. And so we, we basically created the Rimfire Challenge that uh, uh, Ruger ran it for five years, NSSF ran it for five years, and now we have it back. We uh, NSSF is an incubator. They don't like to run things for long periods of time. So we took the sport back, created a nonprofit, and our, you know, our first, our first nationals is in like two, uh, two weeks at the Lucas Range in Cross Timber, Missouri. That's but, very, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. I love the sports. Yeah. That's very exciting. So you actually, uh, since you were kind of there at the foundation of both USPSA and IDPA, you know, the tale that's told around campfires is that people thought that USPSA was, uh, you know, was becoming too, uh, I don't know, tactical and people were gaming it too much. And that's kind of where IDPA came from. Is that your perception as well? And how, you know, how was it for you kind of being at the, at the genesis of both? There was, there was an interesting point in USPSA when we didn't know as much as we thought it, thought we did when we started USPSA. And later on, I mean, as an active guy, I, uh, at the behest of Bill Wilson, who at that point was a, a board member for USPSA, I wrote the the first standards for what would become limited class. You know, at that point we called it a stock gun class, mm-hmm. and I screwed up. I, uh, <laughs> I I I did not see the rise of high capacity guns. I did not see the rise of of supers and and. Uh, but anyway, so those rules were written at a time when none of that stuff existed. And uh, as sports do, USPSA became more focused on on the competition. There's and there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing. But it, it kind of left a whole group of people that they would go, you know, new people coming into the sport, they'd go to a USPSA match and they'd go, good Lord, I, I can't afford the guns. And I don't understand mm-hmm. how come these people are so good. I'm not going to come out here and make a complete fool of myself. And at the same time, USPSA's administration, um, oh gosh, there, there was just friction between USPSA and the manufacturers. Which is never a good idea. I mean, who yeah. pays for this stuff? That seems pretty interesting. <laughs> it does kind of seem like a logical thing. USPSA was not at that point willing to do what, what we always thought of as a stock gun class. Essentially, Billy, Bill Wilson and, and Walt Roush and Kenny Hackathorn and uh, a couple other people thought, well, why don't we create a match that is more focused on uh, almost what USPSA did in the beginning? Quote unquote, we all, it was combat shooting, right? That's what it was called. And, and so they launched. And, and the interesting thing now is, is the, the, the arc for sports is always the same. You know, USPSA goes down the same arc as, as, uh, as IDPA, yeah. as three gun. I mean, I, I was, it, I was thinking just that because IDPA now, I mean, it, it's all about how can you game the system to, to, you know, place the highest, mm-hmm. uh, and people figure life will find a way, as Jeff Goldblum said in Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely true. I mean, I, I, my theory is that all sports evolve toward the, the things that the top competitors do best mm-hmm. because the top competitors are the most active people and, mm-hmm. and they have the biggest voice and, and, you see the sports moving in that direction. Uh, even like cowboy example, you know, cowboy moved from like this weird Western recreation sport into what it is now, which is essentially speed. Mm-hmm. And, and the speeds are absolutely amazing. But it, it, it actually follow. I talked to uh, Judge Roy Bean, Harper, Harper Cray, who I used to shoot Ipsic with in the old days. And he goes, yeah, 
He goes, it's really funny. He goes, as many rules as we put in place to keep us from going down that path that USPSA went and IDPA went, we still went down that path. Yeah. So, so, I, I don't think it's beatable. But it's okay. I mean, <laughs> I enjoy shooting fast. Yeah. Well, Michael, I'm glad that we have you on the show because I have this idea. I think IDPA has moved too far in that direction. It's too gamified. I want to bring everyone down to the same level. So I want to do a blindfolded shooting league. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, wear a welder's mask where you can't see anything at all. Exactly. You know, the problem with doing that is one of these competition shooters will figure, figure out how to do like echolocation like a dolphin and uh, everyone will be striving to, to match up with that. I think that's Ben Stoger. I mean, he'll, <laughs> yes. he'll start echolocuting and, and manage to jump over the uh, divan that you set to block him. <laughs> totally agree. Do you still participate in the shooting sports? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love them. And, uh, so I, I kind of wander aimlessly through them now. I, uh, Saturday I shot a, an all carbine match and it was, is a, a prep match for the red October AK match down in Utah in a month or so. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to be able to shoot that match, but I, I took out my, uh, my Hebrew hammer, <laughs> like it. a Galil in 308. Nice. What other guns so, do you use when you're, when you're participating in these? Well, gosh. Um, and, and, you know, I hope the ghost of Jeff Cooper forgives me this, you know, <laughs> but, but after years and, and literally, literally like a million rounds through 1911s, I, I, I shoot Glocks. <laughs> I, I shoot, I shoot a, a G19 in, uh, like an IDPA and I shoot a, a G19 with a, an RMR, Trichicon Red Dot in, in USPSA carry optics. I actually have an open Glock too that I sometimes screw around with for USPSA open. My, my three gun guns, um, like I said, I went to heavy metal about a year ago because I know I'm never going to win the Cadillac, mm-hmm. although there isn't a Cadillac. But if there was, if there was, I'm not going to win it. And once again, and Dan Horner, he's got the Cadillac. Boom. But, uh, yeah, I, I like shooting the Galil. I have a, I have a JP competition 556 that I shot for years in three gun. And, uh, a Remington, uh, one of the Versamax. But now I've kind of, like I said, I, I went to heavy metal. I shoot a Galil because it's just plain hard to shoot. You know, it's a jackhammer. Yeah. And, uh, a Benelli pump shotgun, a Nova. And, uh, once again, a Glock, a, a G41, longer slide, 45 ACP. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I can't figure out how to change from a Glock. I got used to it. Definitely, so definitely. I carry a Glock. So. We've seen the evolution of competition, USPSC, IDPA, three gun, and we may be a little bit early in this, but do you think at some point, maybe in the next decade, we're going to end up with like another faction of the shooting sports? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, uh, you can't beat that. I mean, you can't beat evolution. You know, Darwin always wins. You kind of see it like, look at three gun right now. And, and it's a good kind of, uh, uh, micro view. You know, three gun goes to a point where all of a sudden what you need is a 14 shot semi-automatic shotgun and weird bondage devices that allow you to shove 45 shells into the shotgun. Right. And all of a sudden people start going like, that's not fun. So you, you see the rise of like kind of run in gun sports that are more athletic, the rise of pistol caliber carbines in USPSA and, and now in IDPA because Chris pistol caliber carbines are relatively easy to shoot, relatively inexpensive. And, and, you know, compared to a three gun setup or even precision rifle, I mean, look at precision rifle, sell your car, buy a nice scope. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. <laughs> so sure. It'll come around. And at sooner or later, I mean, I think the false division between tactical and competition sooner or later should die off. But I'm not, I thought it would die off by now. But 
it certainly hasn't. So you've been in the industry for a while. Just at the industry as a whole, how have you seen it evolve? Um, I've, I've seen it evolve to, to executives who are more rooted in the shooting sports than they used to be. I mean, if you go back, you know, when I kind of started, most of the executives were, were hunters. Uh, an example, I, I used to run the, the NSSF's media education program and my whole function was taking, uh, anti-gun journalists to the range, which was a laugh riot pretty much. I remember asking a major firearms company for money for, you know, if you could give us prizes and help us because this program is critically important because it connects us to mainstream media. And I remember the, the CEO of the company, he sat there and he looked at me and he kept tapping his ear like he couldn't hear, shaking his head like he couldn't hear. And I finally said, listen, you know, I'm, I'm too stupid to figure out what's going on here. You need to tell me. And he goes, you're not talking about blood sports. And so honestly, I'm not interested. I thought, huh, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it, 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 it surprised me. But as, as we moved along, I mean, now you, the executives involved in, in the shooting, uh, in the main companies are competitors. They're active in, and you know, I hunt as well. So I mean, I, I, I wrote the white paper for NSSF that myself and Paul Earhart, wrote the white paper for NSSF explaining how uh, shooting and hunting were diverging from each other. And uh, that was like, I don't know, 20 years ago. Now they've kind of reconverged. I mean, I, I see uh, fewer – I see more competitive shooters going like, you know, I think I'm going to go whack an elk, which is a surprise because it wasn't always so. But mm-hmm. it's better. Right now it's better. Uh, the industry people know what they're doing. Most of them do. Some of them, it's hopeless. But – uh you see the product coming out. The product is, is, is quantums better than it was. Mm-hmm. Definitely uh, agree. I thought it was funny when my girlfriend and I have been together like 26 years and she's an attorney and she runs my production company and uh, she has a line when people say, why aren't you married? And she goes, we have something so much more binding than a marriage contract. We have a joint mortgage and that's actionable. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> when we first started going together, you know, she's like, I, I need to understand this. She goes, I watched you. You bought one of these quote unquote 1911 45s. I said, yes. And she goes, you never opened the box. You sent it directly to the gunsmith. I said, yes. And she goes, and now you're going to pay the gunsmith, what, a thousand dollars to make it a functional, useful gun? I said, yes. She goes, name one other product in the whole world that you would put up with that kind of crap from. She goes, if you went to Best Buy and bought a thousand dollar Sony and it didn't work, you would be ballistic. I said, yes. Mm-hmm. She goes, so why do you put up with it, with these guns? And, and that's a fair question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of as we've rolled along, it, it's not so much anymore. I mean, I would be stunned if I got a, a mainstream manufacturer's polymer frame striker fired pistol that didn't work. I mean, you only got like 10 moving parts. Come on. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody can actually get them to work. And I think that's great. You know, I love the rise of the modular gun. We, uh, I know Polymer 80 is one of your, or has been one of your sponsors, but. Definitely. We actually filmed for shooting gallery for season 19, which will be uh, Q1, Q2, 2019. We filmed building, um, a Glock or Glockish, I guess a Glockish type gun up from, uh, the Polymer 80 lower. But the irony is, is because we're on television, because we represent a hugely deep pocket, we are probably the deepest pocket out there. 
I actually had to have Polymer 80 serialize their 80% frame and transfer it to me. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, because otherwise, I mean, there's weird laws. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, that actually is a good point because uh, what we know about building a gun in your garage and how you can't use other people's tools anymore and you know, you have to do all your own stuff. That's actually probably a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to have the guys from Polymer 80 here with me. Yeah. And my own attorney in Prince Law, which is Prince Law is probably the best firearms attorney operation in the country. They're jo- very good. Joshua Prince. Joshua Prince. So I talked to, I talked to Joshua and he goes, <laughs> if you have them in your garage, Michael, you're going to get nailed and you can't not get nailed. Uh, he goes, you're a high value target. And he goes, plus, I know the ATF loves you anyway. <laughs> so, he goes, so go ahead and do it. And, uh, you know, then you're going to have to hire me to consult to get you out of jail. So I, I went to the Polymer 80 guys and said, serialize it. Transfer it to me as a gun. Thus clearing up all of that, all of that material. Definitely. I am going to, I'm going to build one by myself just on, uh, on, you know, one of the internet projects because as long as I don't have them in the room. Yeah. It's, it's clean. Mm-hmm. But for television, I'm like, I really wanted them in the room. (laughs) It makes a lot of sense. Our guest is Michael Bain, and we're going to take a brief pause to hear about our friends at Hackett Equipment. So I just got news that the Big Bertha bag uh, is 15% off right now. But if you use the code GUNFUNNY on top of the discount, you'll actually get 25% off. Dang, you yeah. can stack discounts? Yeah. And then uh Greg over from Hackett Equipment, he also wanted me to give you guys kind of a bundle discount. So for our listeners, if you use the code GFBUNDLE20, you'll actually get 20% off the rifle bag, which just came out, uh, as well as the Big Bertha bag. And if you guys haven't seen it on their social media, they actually connect. So you can put that rifle bag onto the Big Bertha bag and basically you know carry it as one yeah yo dog i heard you like packs on your packs so we put packs on your packs so you could pack while you pack uh-huh that's right <laughs> all right thank you hacking equipment uh we'll get back right now to michael bain we we talked earlier kind of about uh, as part of the shooting gallery uh what some of your favorite things were but Firearms kind of affords a lot of opportunities and a lot of adventure adventures that are out there. Is there anything that just stands out as like your your favorite adventure that was brought to you by the firearms lifestyle and and kind of being in the media and what you do? Uh yeah, kind of. I always think of it as like what's been cool lately. It's this year, and and it's a hunting story. I will tell you that is we started actually doing on shooting gallery. We do one hunting package a season. And it's, it's been very popular, but this year what I wanted to do with Richard Mann from, uh, Shooting Illustrated and Field and Stream is, um, we went, uh, Cape Buffalo hunting with a 4570 lever gun. Dang. Uh, and it was rock and roll as it should be. I mean, it, you know, everything ended up in the thorn up close and scary. And, and once again, you know, in, in kind of a Robert Ruark, Ernest Hemingway world, that's how a Cape Buffalo hunt should end, where at least the buffalo's got a fair shot. But just to be able to do that, to be able to spend some time with Israeli special forces, which uh, is pretty much a closed universe, mm-hmm. you know, I felt really lucky just to be able to do that. And plus, the shows and, and my previous—I once wrote a book on, on high-risk sports, and 
that book was really very popular, which I didn't know until I kind of got into this. That book was very popular in the special operations community. And so when I started meeting, when I started doing shooting gallery and meeting a lot of guys within the special operations community, they're like, you're that idiot from over the edge. I'm like, yeah, that would be me. <laughs> and uh, it, it actually worked out really well. These guys go, well, there's something wrong with you. Why don't you come hang out with us? And uh, just the, the the opportunity to spend time with people in that world that that truly have protected us and, and truly it's a – in a lot of cases, as you guys know, I mean, it's kind of a ghost world. Things happen there that will never be public. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you spend that time with them and uh, you go like, wow. And same thing on uh, – uh, one thing I really always thought was super cool is I uh, I met the FBI profiler that Joe Montana based his character on in Criminal Minds and have spent time with him. And – 10 years crimes against children, 12 years as a profiler for FBI. I always told him, I said, man, wow. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that what's in your head isn't in my head. Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> I don't want to know what you know. Totally agree. But the ability to be able to meet those people, some of the counter terrorist operatives for the whole United States, you know, working with the FBI or some of the other acronym agencies, you think like, man, these, these people are like, like super people. You know, not only are they great people, but what they've done is kind of above and beyond what what one could imagine a person could do. And to me, that's been the great honor of this is to just to be able to kind of like, can I at least buy you guys a beer? And yeah, <laughs> so that's great. Wow. So I was reading your uh, your blog and it was about hunting, but you did quote something that was really interesting. And to quote you, so it was all guns are the same. An attack on one is an attack on all. And we've done pretty much well making that stick. I, I, I absolutely believe that. I mean, we, uh, and it was hard to do when, when, when I came into it, it was so divided up and there was so much animosity between the various groups Especially when we came out in combat shooting, practical shooting, and and we used things called holsters, which actually carried the gun instead of those great. I don't know if you remember, like, well, well you probably don't because you're, you know, you're half my age. But uh, <laughs> you know, competition shooting was having this great big box that opened up, and inside you would have all these beautiful guns built by Jim Clark Senior. That costs like your car and, and you would stand there with one hand in your pocket and the other hand holding that gun straight out and mm-hmm. you would go bang, bang. And you know, when we, we showed up and, and we got all these like weird 1911s and we're, we're taking them out of holsters and we're running with them. There was this whole like, you know, there's something wrong with you people. You know, actually the line was, the line was always, you're going to ruin it for all of us. And, and kind of the more I went forward in the industry, that's where I kind of evolved that sense is that the stupidest thing we could do as an industry is say there's a difference between, between, I don't know, a $125,000 Parazzi and a Jennings 22. There is no difference. Mm-hmm. They're guns. I've had, I've argued this with some of the shooting sports where they're like, well, you know, my gun is like a golf club. You know, it's a golf club. I said, okay, I need you to stand right in front of me, and I'm going to take your sporting clay shotgun with your sporting clay's load, and let me shoot you at 15 yards. And you tell me if a golf club will do that. Well, you can't tell me because you're dead. Mm -hmm. So it's stupid to pretend that that these devices, 
You know, whether we use them for our own safety, whether we use them in competition, it's silly to pretend that they are anything but what they are. You know, they are, they are machines and they are machines designed to kill things. And when you accept that, it makes it much easier to, to negotiate or not negotiate, but to argue with the antis. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, I'm, you know, I'll perfectly acknowledge you that this, if I point this gun at you and pull the trigger, you'll die. So what? If I point my car at you and put my foot in the accelerator pedal, you'll die just as dead. Mm-hmm. You know, those things don't matter. Um, and uh, with the NSSF program, the media education program, it's really kind of odd. Uh, we did one uh, outside of Boston. And a woman from Reuters came, very smart, intelligent journalist woman. And she goes, would you do me a favor when it come? I said, sure, name it. She goes, I'd, I'd like to see guns of the Civil War from the North and the South. Okay. Reached out to a couple of collectors organizations. And so I had them there for her. And one of them was a, a Confederate, you know, a document had provenance, a, a revolver used by a Confederate soldier, 44 uh, percussion revolver. And she goes, she actually looks at it and she goes, but that can't hurt me now, right? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I know. What do you mean? I mean, and she goes, no, no, it's old. I said, yeah. I said, these things don't compost. I said, if I were to stand you in front of the line and pull this trigger, you'd be just as dead as the Union officer in, you know, in 1863. And she goes, I just can't grasp that anything made that far back still works. Hmm. And, and I said, the, the problem is, is the propaganda on guns is high tech killing machines. Right. <laughs> they're not. I mean, as, as a machine, they're relatively simple machines. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a spring and, and a little thing that hits a primer. That's so and, interesting. I, I'm stuck on that. It, it can't kill me now. I'm I'm just stuck on it. It's it, I'm trying to wrap my head that's around. How, I mean, that's how a lot of yeah, journalists yeah. and media think nowadays, though. So it's it, true, you know. That's fascinating. So you mentioned that you were shot once. Tell us about that. Well, I was shot at once. That's, oh. that's uh, uh All right. Well, uh, then forget it. The story is probably not going to be as interesting. <laughs> right, okay, but all right. I'm in Grenada, right? I, I'd work, been working with the Rangers in Sims. Uh, as I said, I've killed a lot of cops in Sim. And what we do is we work with the Ranger Battalion in Fort Benning, as I mentioned earlier. And so when the grenade invasion happened ages and ages ago, I get this call and say, I said, you know who this is on the phone? I said, yeah. And he goes, are you busy this weekend? I said, no. He goes, you want to go invade a small island country? I said, yeah, you know, cool. How does it work? So they got me on a C, you know, C-130 in there really early and and uh so i went to grenada and it's it's kind of funny because i'm really a bad war correspondent i uh we're sitting in the plane and the, and the military guys are going we don't understand how you got here asshole if we can say that word that was oh, oh we can referred to me it's like how'd you get on this plane asshole you got a letter and they said you know when you land there's no support for you you're on your own i said no oh, that's cool uh, I was with an Army Times photographer, and Army Times photographer said, what are you going to do? So we'll get a taxi. <laughs> and these guys are laughing. They're like, it's a war, Michael. It's a little war, but it's a war. <laughs> so um, we land under fire. The plane's under fire. You, you know, you land, and it stops at about five feet. You jump out, and it's raining, and people are shooting. And the Army Times guy goes, do you have any idea what we're going to do? So get a taxi, dude. It's easy. We walked to the first town and we walked up and down the streets till we found a house with a, a taxi sitting in front of it, you know, a car written taxi on the side. And I knocked on the door because I'm an ugly American. And he goes, can I, what do you want? What do you want? I said, I need a taxi. 
And he goes, there's a war. I said, how much money did you make last year? And it came out to like $200 American. I said, here's $500 American. The Army Times guy goes, I got $500 Americans. We need a taxi. And he goes, swear to me, you won't get me killed. I said, no, cool. I won't get you killed. So anyway, we had a taxi. And I finally ran into a bunch of my, my ranger guys. And they're like, Michael, get out of the taxi and come with us. You know, we're, we're trying to track down a Cuban sniper and we're, you know, we're out kind of in the bush and we're all doing that kind of like military thing. And, and, uh, we come under sniper fire to which I immediately responded by jumping in a ditch and covering my head. And I considered wetting myself. That was my, my other option. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so the, the Rangers are standing there going like, Michael, get out of the damn ditch. <laughs> I said, people are shooting at me. And he goes, they're Cuban snipers, Michael. They've never hit anybody in their entire life. I'm like, how is that going to look on my gravestone? The only man in history killed by a Cuban sniper. And they're just, get the hell up, Michael. Come on. And it's like, okay, okay. I'm fine. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it wasn't a revelation or anything. It was just a, it was kind of one of those like odd things. I could tell you that, that eventually, um, I, I hung out with the EOD guys because they're cool because they disassemble explosives. They are. And, and I'm sitting on top of a, a skid, is you know, one of those plastic tape skids on top of a mountain there. And I'm watching the guys pull detonators out of RPGs and one of them had been jury rigged to explode on the EOD guys, but they caught it. So we're all sitting there under these flash Klieg lights watching them, you know, screw the debts out. And all of a sudden a military guy, I know because they all jumped up and salute, but I, I didn't know military rank. But I knew that if all these guys jumped up from their detonator and saluted, he must be brass. Mm-hmm. And he comes up and he looks at me and he goes, who is this? And the ranger guy goes, that's just Michael. And he goes, no. <laughs> and he goes, what is he doing here? And I said, just watching. And he looks at me, he looks at me, he looks at me, he goes, you moron. He goes, do you have any idea what you're sitting on? He says, no. Takes out his knife, cuts open the package. It's a four foot by four foot by four foot slab in boxes of Simtex. Oh, you know, jeez. Plastic. <laughs> and he goes, if this goes off, the whole mountain could get out of here. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it's kind of weird with best defense. I mean, now we, we laugh. My, my Mike Seeklander, Mike Janich, my co-host in this, is after like 11 years of analyzing and deconstructing crime, we're actually really relatively hard to mug. We're, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> it's like, oh man, this was in season four. <laughs> that that's great. I love it. Hey, you mentioned earlier uh, some some books and things like that. And what's it like to be Michael Bain, the author? Sometimes it's weird. Uh, what an author hopes for, uh, at least. From my standpoint, what an author hopes for is a book that goes on beyond them. And, and that means you've, you know, I, I don't know, you, maybe you can say you've made a contribution or whatever, but a book that kind of goes on beyond you. And I, I've been lucky enough to have like a couple of those. I, oddly enough, <laughs> probably the most famous book I ever wrote, well, second most, was a book called White Boys Singing the Blues, in which I discovered that the entire history of rock and roll could only happen because Memphis got wiped out in yellow fever epidemics after the Civil War before the turn of the century. At least that was my conclusion as a researcher. Mm-hmm. And and that, that particular little piece of musicology, I wrote that, God, man, long time, 79, 80. And, and that stands. It, it's actually survived every academic attempt to knock it down. Which, it caused me to believe that all history is written by assholes like me. <laughs> who just 
you know, play, make stuff up and it goes on without you. But, you know, it, it white boys is, uh, it's been called, uh, one of the five best books on rock and roll ever written. Wow. And awesome. uh, I, I think that's really neat. It's still used in a lot of college classes on a supplementary course on American culture. Uh, over the edge. When I wrote over the edge on extreme sports, I just, I was, I was in Florida, right? I was writing for business magazines, mainly on computers. I hung out with like Bill Gates and hung out with David Packard, hung out at the MIT media lab with Nicholas Negroponte. And, and these are people who are like changing the world. And so I'm writing all this neat stuff. I was under contract to the Chicago Tribune news syndicate. We had a big day. I'd, I'd done some windsurfing and we had like a 60, 70 mile an hour day. And I said, I'll go windsurfing. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? And, uh, so I went. And I didn't die, you know, but I knew things were out of control when, when, you know, holding on to the boom to keep the thing going is it cut my palms so badly I had to duct tape my palms, you know, blood Ouch. dripping out of them. So I got done. I'm all pumped up. You got all that adrenaline, right? And I, I call all my friends and said, Hey, you know, I just had this incredible experience, man. So I'll buy pizza. I'll buy beer. So we went to a pizza place, our favorite pizza place. I bought pizza and beer and we, we drank a lot. And somewhere right about last call, when they actually called taxis for us because we were so pathetic. <laughs> but a friend of mine goes, he goes, you know, you ought to make a list of shit that can kill you. So what a great idea. And so on a napkin, you know, with the waitress's pen, we made a list of 13 sporting events that can kill you, the shit that can kill you list. And uh, some of the stuff was like easy, like rock climbing. Some of the stuff was psychotic, like cave diving. And so we got done, and we're getting in the taxis. A friend of mine said, what are you going to do with the list? I said, oh, what the heck? I'm going to do all the events and write a book about it. And uh, he goes, cool. And so my punchline was always like seven years, all the money I had in the world, and one marriage later, I finished. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but I wrote this book, and – you know, I wanted to write a, a extreme sports book without testosterone, not as a studly guy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because I wasn't. I'm not. And uh, the book came out. It was very successful. I mean, I, I made money, and and the book never went away. I mean, it's out of print now, but it still circulates around. I wrote it once again. I, I, you know, I began writing in the 80s, uh, mid-80s, and, and kind of wrote it through into the early 90s. I'm actually in the mid-90s, and it finally came out in the late 90s, but uh, – the book took on a life of its own, which is uh, a very weird thing. I have gotten, I still do. I mean, this is a book, you know, a lot I wrote in, you know, in, in the 1990s. And I still get regular emails from people going like, I've read your book and it meant this much to me. And, and in many cases, the stories to me are, are uh, to, to me, the stories are amazing. I mean, they range from weird. Uh, an orthopedist who gave up his practice to hike to the North Pole. And he sent me a picture from the North Pole. Um, one of the Scandinavian Olympic teams, their, their, uh, their winter sports Olympic teams, uh, cross country downhill ski or something. They actually got a, uh, a, a translation of, of over the edge. And the, their coach sent me a note that said, before every Olympics, I have all my athletes read over the edge again. And he goes, I feel like you have a certain participation in all our medals. Dang. Uh, which is kind of, you know, uh, one woman, and to me, this is like weird story. A guy, I was agoraphobic. I, I never left my house. He goes, I, you know, I was in my, my thirties. I never left my house. I, I figured I was ruined for life. He goes, I've read over the edge enough so that I could chant it back to you. Wow. And he goes, I'm now a personal trainer. I'm married happily. My first name, my firstborn son was named Michael after you. 
New Zealand triathlete. She was in a car wreck, you know, paraplegic. And she wrote me a note. She goes, they told me I would never walk again, but, but I believe in you. And she goes, I'm wiggling my toes. I'm in a wheelchair now. So I'm going to run again. And thank you. And I, you know, I, I never answer them because whatever they brought to the table was more than I did. Wow. Uh, but it's, it's odd yeah. to have a, uh, that's, one funny story from it might not, because I blather as you noticed my ex, my ex had a new husband and I ran into him and he goes, I got to tell you a story. He goes, I'm in Germany. And he said, I'm talking to all these extreme sports guys in Germany. He's a software guy. And he goes, they're all into this stuff, you know. And he goes, yeah, yeah, my ex's boyfriend was into that kind of stuff. And they're like, oh, do you ever hear of him? He goes, yes, some guy named Michael Bain. The guy goes, Michael Bain is God. (laughs) Michael Bain is the inspiration. Michael Bain changed everything. You know, and so her ex said to me, I understand now why she hates you so much. (laughs) (laughs) That's oh, that's great. classic. I love it. But it's, you know, being an author is cool. And you've, how many books have you written? Wasn't it like 22 or something? <laughs> yeah. It's that's like 21 nonfiction and one novel, which wow. uh, I mean, my favorite review on the novel, absolutely, which is a gun kind of, it's like guns, music, and country music and sex. I mean, what's left? But uh, <laughs> one of the reviews I read on it that said, as an author myself, I have lines that I will not cross. Michael Bain crossed those lines on page 13 and never looked back. Says, <laughs> <laughs> so sure, sure, there was incest, but that's okay. <laughs> it's fun to write them. I mean, it, it's, uh, and every so often now I'm too busy now, but I mean, Billy Wilson blackmailed me into writing his book. I mean, I wrote Bill Wilson's first book on the combat modifying the 45 auto, which was the essentially the definitive book for like 10 years on how to do a 45. So I saw Bill and he goes, I'm going to write an autobiography and I'm going to tell all about the stuff I do. I'm like, cool. And about three months later, he calls me up and he goes like, I fired the third writer. <laughs> said, well, of course you did, man. And he goes, you write a lot of books. I said, don't do this to me, Bill. Huh. And he goes, you're my friend. <sighs> Plus, I just like demolished my leg in a bizarre accident. You know, falling down my own range. Never ever hang on to a box of 509 millimeters because you don't want to spill it and then drive your right knee into a rock. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that was fun. Lots of surgeries, but, uh, Bill goes, all you're doing is you're lying around rehabbing. It won't kill you to write this book. So I wrote it. And every so often I want to come back and write a real book again. I, I do actually miss that level of writing. Because what I do now is I write bullet points. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for the no attention span generation. Absolutely true. Most fun thing I've had, though, I mean, when, when we started working with Joe Montaigne, we started working with Joe Montaigne because I met him at a celebrity shoot. And uh, he was doing a, an HBO movie called uh, a Rat Pack, and he was playing Dean Martin. And it turned out he based his character, Dean Martin, on a friend of mine's biography of Dean Martin. So we ended up sitting around drinking, talking about that. And so years later... You know, I, I asked him to be on my show and uh, I sent him a letter that said, you know, I'll ruin your reputation in Hollywood. <laughs> You'll become a pariah. I mean, you know, they'll never get invited to an A party again. And I'm going to pay you roughly what you get for a nice lunch. <laughs> and uh, the next day his manager called me and he goes, for some inexplicable reason, my client wants to do your show. But, you know, when I started working with Joe, yeah, Gun Stories is 100% scripted, and I'm the script writer. I, I'd never written script to what you would call a Hollywood standard. And it's harder than you would think. 
You know, you have so, so little time. I mean, yeah. a sentence, two sentences, three sentences is a long piece of script. And Joe says, you know, you're a good writer. You know, you're, you're a fine writer, but you got to learn how to do this. And so essentially I went to Hollywood and, uh, sat down with them and, and worked and worked and worked to learn how to be, uh, a really efficient script writer, good script writer. And Joe now he'll go like, write me a joke. And, uh, afterwards he, you know, I wrote him the first joke, the first lighthearted thing. He goes, you have any idea how hard that is to do? I said, no, it's better you don't tell me stuff like that. But it's kind of funny. Is we were um, we we're, were in L.A. We we're filming at the Autry, and uh, Joe was doing his stand-ups, his reads. And my my friend Timmy Timmy Crimmin, who's my producing partner, and who's now a senior executive vice president in charge of all original programming at Outdoor Channel, which means my expenses always get approved. <laughs> um, Timmy said, "Can you direct?" Normally, Tim directs. I script, and I said, "Yeah, sure." He's got I have some other stuff to do. Got an interview to do. He said, "Can you just direct for today?" I said, "Sure." Not a problem. So everybody's there. There's all the cameras and the set and everything there. And I'm standing behind the camera with my, my director of photography, Rob. And I look up and, um, standing next to Joe is David Mamet, who I think I put this on the internet. I mean, Mamet is arguably the finest writer of my generation. You know, a, a great playwright, Pulitzer Prize winner, a legend in Hollywood as a director and a writer. And he's reading my script. And he'd go like, to the teleprompter guy, go, roll it up, roll it up, roll it up. Go forward, go stop. And I'm looking at him like, holy crap. <laughs> the finest writer in my generation is reading my script. And for the first time since high school, I had performance anxiety. Oh man. You know? <laughs> I couldn't say action in front of David Mamet. I mean, it's just, it was too trite. Finally, my director of photography looks at me and goes, are we going to do this, man? I said, it's your ball, dude. Call it. And he goes, fine, Michael, action. And so we go through it. And afterwards, Mamet comes up to me. He goes, you the guy that wrote the script? I said, yeah. And he goes, you're not a half bad writer. I said, thank you, Mr. Mamet. <laughs> Please knight me. You know, I just don't bend. You touch me with a sword. I'm 100%. Anything. Anything. So tell us about your podcast, Downrage Radio. Oh, the tale. Gosh, all these years, 12 years ago, uh, my partner on the internet, Marshall Holloway, who actually invented social media for, for uh, gun owners in Norway in 1992, oddly enough. But Marshall and I have been working together since then. He goes, I think you should do a podcast. I said, I'm busy. And he goes, nonetheless, he goes, do this. Do me 15 minutes of audio and we'll put it up on iTunes and see if it, if it works. I said, yeah, okay. And well, it worked a lot. So I, I started doing, um, Downrange Radio. There's music in it. All of it now is safely free music. In the beginning, I stole music like everybody else on earth. Yeah. And oddly enough, I never got a cease and desist from like BMI. I, but I got letters from groups that never were played. Uh, Vitamin Pets, Bob Wayne. I mean, P- these people have never been on radio in their entire life. And they're like, you played our song, dude. <laughs> but it was uh, what I wanted to do was something uh, less structured than television. You know, television is what it is. I mean, it's, it's three acts and 21 minutes, 21 and a half minutes of edit. That's what's there in a 30 minute show. And, and it's, it is an absolute box with steel sides. Nothing can change within that. So I wanted to do kind of a, a haphazard show, which eventually evolved to like 45 minutes. And, and it was, a, it, it still is. It's a, it's a mix of what's on my mind today. 
some politics, depending on what's going on, some new products, guns, stuff I shot, uh, things I saw on the Internet that I thought was abysmally stupid, uh, which is almost everything, by the way, uh, <laughs> including my stuff, you know. I know that feeling. <laughs> Sometimes you read stuff on the Internet and you're going like, no, 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 that's just wrong. You know, it's a, a, just a stupid example. A, just a quick example is Sky Firearms, you know, mm-hmm. who make inexpensive polymer frame pistols. You know, I hammer fired. I knew the guys and I'd actually been to the factory in Florida and the, the, one of my other lives, I was a manufacturing consultant. So uh, and I wrote books about manufacturing, but so they turned me over to their manufacturing manager and I spent two days in the factory going through stuff that is really boring. If I were to tell you all this now, you'd not, not hear snores. <laughs> but uh, so I get back and there's a thing on the Internet that said everybody knows that Sky Firearms are being made 100 percent in the Philippines, brought under and assembled in the United States. I said, that's not so. <laughs> and they're like, well, how do you know? I said, well, I was at the factory. <laughs> I saw it. Yeah, I saw them being boxed. I saw I saw the metal come in. I saw the metal get machined. I saw it made into a gun. The guy goes, you're lying. They're paying you off. Uh, I don't think they have money to pay me off, number one. <laughs> and number two, why would I lie? <laughs> to get a free $200 gun? No. You know, that's kind of how the internet side of the industry is. And so the podcast is, is about four years ago, five years ago. I realized that more people, Marshall pointed this out, that more people recognize me from the podcast and from the broadcasts and what we call the linear stuff, which was odd. I mean, I, I, a year ago, walking through a hotel in Johannesburg, right? Uh, the Intercontinental in Johannesburg. It's a really nice hotel with a great breakfast. But uh, I'm walking through, and I was talking to somebody else, and this guy goes, excuse me. Yes. And he's a South African guy. He goes, could you say from the secret hidden bunker in the Rocky Mountains for me? <laughs> from the secret hidden bunkers in the Rocky Mountains. He goes, oh, but God, you're Michael Bain. Say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, you know, it's it's weird to have that, to be recognizable like that. And, you know, I had a Swedish music magazine say that I was the greatest B-side disc jockey on earth, hmm. which I, I thought was kind of cool. But it's because I, I have no taste. Uh, every so often I fall into, like today, I got to do a podcast today. And, and uh, I got a bunch of free Indian, southern Indian music, which is a real specific type of music from the eastern or the southern part of India, and um, stuff that you would normally never hear. <laughs> and then, I, you know, then I, I kind of tap out with some kind of country song that I picked up somewhere that, that mm-hmm. is a non-royal. You know, it's like I'm up shit creek today, which is the uh, most popular song I ever played on there when I was stealing music was either She Left Me for Jesus or Plastic Girl. <laughs> Plastic Girl is the only country music song ever dedicated to a love doll. Oh, which is, she's my life size, wife size, full time blow up plastic girl. I'll call her Wendy. <laughs> uh, I'll look it up. <laughs> Mel McDaniel, he used to play the oil. I mean, you know, when I was the world's greatest living authority on country music, I was in New York. I was the editor of Country Music Magazine. So when I wrote a lot of that stuff, interestingly enough, the first book I ever wrote, which was on Willie, Willie and Waylon and that kind of part of the music movement back then. It was just reprinted almost in toto by the uh, Oxford University History of American Country Music. You know, they contacted me and said, we, you know, can we reprint some of your stuff? I'm like, yeah, sure. Oh, wow. And I got it. And it's like, wait a minute. This is all my stuff. Yeah, this is everything. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for doing but, that for me. 
Yeah, it's like I, I send to other people that – plus it says Oxford University. People think I'm smarter than I am. I mean that's the same as an honorary doctorate I think. Yeah, I call myself Dr. Bain. Uh, <laughs> as you should. Uh, you know what I've realized during this interview, Michael? Okay. Is that my life sucks and I'm never going to amount to anything. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> uh, which has me, you know, thinking like you've already accomplished, uh, you probably accomplished more in like two years than I'll accompl- accomplish in my entire life. But so I'm actually laughing because I, at one point I looked over at Sean and he's buying the book. <laughs> yeah, I did actually. <laughs> And I was like, oh, poor Sean. He just wants to live his life. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's power in randomness. I once, I, I once was a, a, a professional speaker, you know, motivational speaker, and I failed at that because I told people the truth, which is you don't get 10,030 days by wishing. <laughs> you know, you can't put affirmative Sorry, messages Sean. on your refrigerator. Mm-hmm. I'm the kind of guy who lives in the Cadillac. I mean, it's not going to work. You know, you actually have to do stuff. <sighs> but I, I think that I'm very lucky. And I've been willing this, willing to give up security for a, a sort of a lifestyle that I envisioned when I was a kid. Yeah. And I, I once, I once keynoted at a big journalism conference and, you know, like with you guys, you, you give them a little thing that's kind of your, it's an introduction bio. You know, Michael Bain dances with wolves, flies to the moon, all that kind of stuff. And the woman who was in her, you know, she got up there to do my little intro and she starts reading and she stops and she lays it down. And she goes, dear God, I would kill for this man's resume. And and when I got up, I said, you can have it. <laughs> so all you got to do is all those things that, that really are important to you, you know, your your money and your retirement and your kids, give it up. Because that's that's what I played with. You know, I can't, you know, it, it's, there's no such, you know, television on the, on the day that my ratings drop, they'll fire me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, you know, there's no love. Uh, it was always the same in journalism. You know, you were always only as good as your last story. Yeah. So you always knew when you sit down to write, it better be rock and roll. You, you <laughs> mentioned, uh, you mentioned luck and it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from professional hockey player Wayne Gretzky said, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. And uh, part of the, part of it too, and this is odd because it goes back to like actually a self-defense thing. You know, we talk a lot about situational awareness, right? Uh, well, situational awareness ap- rep- applies to everything in your life. And a, a lot of times when I was like doing, you know, when I say this is one of my other lives, I was doing this and, you know, I became aware of tides shifting. And, and when I felt the tide shifting, I shifted with the tide. I, I went in another direction because I just felt things shifting. You know, sometimes I was right, sometimes I was wrong. Oddly enough, uh, one of the guys I worked with as a consultant actually copyrighted the, the two-word phrase "extreme sports" and later sold it and bought himself a lovely ranch in Montana. Wow! But, uh, wow! <laughs> I never think of stuff like that. It's um, gosh, I know me either. Uh, I never think of anything. I think, I think it's a Guy Clark song. I think it, it's that, you know, if the money meant anything, I'd never be the same. I, I appreciate the money. And yeah. believe me, television is much better than journalism. I can imagine. <laughs> Outdoor Channel apologized when I started working for him. They said, well, we're small television, so we don't pay much. I'm like, I was, I was a working journalist in New York City, <laughs> you know. 
I once wrote a story for some magazine, I forget, and they were bought out by like some weird chain, men's chain, and they didn't pay me. It's like 350 bucks at a time when I needed 350 bucks really, really badly. So finally the editor says, come to the office. We'll pay out in cash. I thought that's super. And it turns out that they had bought one of the Times Square, like, you know, uh, video peep show things. So I went in and they gave me a grocery bag full of sticky quarters. Oh. <laughs> it was like, uh, yeah, they're like I took it to the bank, you know, and just set it there. And they're like, what is it? It's said, sticky quarters. <laughs> and everybody's like, oh, gosh, we don't want to actually touch those. Yeah. I'm like, I didn't touch them. Just boil you know, them. <laughs> yeah. But. You know, that stuff is fun. And as a journalist, too, I mean, you know, you, you, you get an assignment, you go to Grenada. I went on the road with Willie Nelson in, in the mid-70s, just before a red-headed stranger took off. And uh, I, I literally just went to his bus. I flew down to North Carolina. I knocked on the door of his bus, 75, 74, and said, uh, I'm a rock critic from New York. Can I go on the road with you? And he goes, Willie looks at me and he goes, you got a bag? I said, yeah, cool. So me and, and Willie and uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Chris Christofferson did the state fair circuit across the south. Jeez. Um, <laughs> my job, well, we're, they were sitting there one day, and, and his road manager goes, if I said the word 1911, would you know what I was talking about? I said, yeah, I would. And he goes, prove it. And he opens his, his case, and he's got like a 1911 A1 in there. So I clear it, empty it, take it apart, put it back together, set it on the table. And he goes, son of a bitch. <laughs> you do know what it is. I said, I do. He goes, load it up. Let's go get the gate. So well, <laughs> the 1911 stuck in my belt, Mexican size, uh, style. I came back with grocery sacks of cash for the t-shirt <laughs> sales. I mean, that's lucky. I mean, it's stuff like that where, you know, I've been on the road with the Almond Brothers. Uh, I wrote Hank Jr.'s book. I was on the road for a year with Hank Williams Jr. Uh, and there are many stories from that. And thank God the statute of limitations has run out, although that doesn't seem to matter anymore. <laughs> right. Apparently not. Uh, <laughs> it's like, it's, I'm always afraid this stuff's going to come back and haunt me. Yeah. But, you know, that's just, you know, to be able to be on the road with, with guys like that and actually to, to spend time with people of – you know, amazing talent like like the aforementioned Guy Clark or Merle Haggard or George Jones or, or uh, I once sang a duet with Garth Brooks on How I Go to Extremes, the Billy Joel song. Somewhere around here, there's still a cassette of it, but I, I, I need to destroy that. <laughs> uh, but things like that, I, Waylon, Waylon Jennings once had Hell's Angels pick me up and throw me through a glass door into 16th Avenue South on, uh, <laughs> you know, in Nashville because I told him he was doing too much coke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, one, one time I fell down the stairs at an Airbnb in Las Vegas. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, like I said, it's all rock and roll. It is. Oh, wait, wait. I got one. This will really break your heart then. Uh, all right. So when Lester Bangs, the, the music critic, died, it uh, Lester was a good friend. And, and it scared the shit out of all of us who were in kind of that music circle in New York City. And we all scattered. Because we're all like, <laughs> you know, maybe it's one too much drug or whatever. But uh, so I was in Florida and I get a call from one of my editors who'd gone to Texas. And he goes, I got a gig for you. I said, super. He goes, 2500 bucks. I said, super, because that's pretty good money. And he goes, I want you to go uh, go to Austin and interview an old broad. I said, do you have an old broad in mind or can I just pick one off the street? And, and he goes, some old philosopher broad. He goes, you ever heard of Ayn Rand? Oh, jeez. I said, Ayn Rand, the foremost philosopher of my generation? He goes, yes. I said, yeah, I read the books. Okay. And he goes, well, go interview her. And uh, so I went to Texas. 
it's right before, before Miss Rand died. And, and, uh, yeah, there's an empty room and there's this chair, like a folding chair, and then there's a high stool, and that's our interview room. And so uh, Miss Rand comes in and gets on this high stool, and I sit in this low chair, and so she looks down on me like a vulture. I mean, it's really very much that kind of like hawkish view of looking at me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I got tape recorder and notepads and all that happy stuff. And I asked my first question, and she sits there for a minute, and she looks at me, and she goes, that's not good enough, young man. Try again. I'm like, I'm going to die here. Wow. <laughs> but I mean, it was like two hours, three hours talking to, to Ayn Rand, about two and a half hours. And, and we got done with the interview. And she, the way she, we got done is she stepped up off the stool and she goes, I'm done, young man. I said, yes, ma'am. And she goes down the hall. And she gets all the way to the end of the hall. She turns around and comes all the way back. And she's short. And she's shaking her finger in my face. It's like right on my nose. And she's shaking her finger. <laughs> and she goes, you have one thing to do with your life. One thing only, young man. Yes, ma'am. See clearly. That's all you ever have to do is see clearly. Goodbye. And I thought, Anne Rand did give me the best advice of my life. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, Michael, what does the uh, newly appointed Dr. Bain have planned for the future? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, uh, I really would like to do another show, which I don't have time to do, but I, next year is the 20th anniversary of shooting gallery. And once again, I, I say this too much, but I want it all to be rock and roll. Yeah. And Outdoor Channel agrees, you know, there, it's going to be something special because, uh, you know, nobody else has gotten to this point, this milestone. So I, I kind of like to celebrate it. I'm really pleased with what I've jacked up best defense a lot. I, for example, in, in two weeks, three weeks, we're, um, we're, we'll be filming a school shooting and, that's a really controversial, scary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when Outdoor Channel goes, you're going to show dead kids. So that would be a school shooting. And, you know, I'm working with literally the best people in the country, you know, the people who know more about this than anybody else. And, I, you know, I, I get excited about projects like that, you know, when you're, when you're putting that together. And in my spare time, you know, I like, I like guns. I fiddle around with guns when I, you know, uh, my girlfriend says, she goes, are you working? I'm like, no, I'm out in the workroom fiddling around with guns. She goes, for you, that's working. True. Says, no, it's not. It's what calms me down. You know, <laughs> it relaxes me. Yeah. To, <laughs> I love to it. tinker with hardware. Yeah. That's awesome. So, I mean, all these, all these shows, the podcast, the books, everything, where can people find it all online and keep up with you? The easiest way is through downrange, www.downrange.tv, which is in effect outdoor channel, outdoor sporting groups firearms vertical website so mm-hmm. so most of the stuff i do there i don't post to the blog uh, to the blog that much anymore although i'm going to come back because i don't like facebook a lot of my stuff goes up on facebook mm-hmm. I'd, I'd really rather bring it back to the blog but you can always find me at downrange that's where the podcast lives we do a weekly 15 minute video podcast shooting gallery online sgo is there and outtakes from the shows we it sounds stupid but but contractually we, I say we, Outdoor Channel, OSG, we can't show more than seven minutes of video uh, from any of our original productions for nine months. Mm-hmm. I guess that's a, a, you know, gestation period. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> to be born. But, and they mean it because Marshall and I once put up 10 minutes to see what would happen. It's called a cease and desist letter. <laughs> uh, well, at least you know. <laughs> So, you know, you can see pieces of them, and then the shows themselves are all archived on Outdoor Channel's big pay site, uh, myoutdoortv.com. So all the seasons of Shooting Gallery, Best Events, Gun Stories, uh, The Ill-Fated Cowboys, my absolute favorite show I ever did. 
we ran six seasons, which is defined in television as a success. But I, I really miss it because it was just stupid fun. Rapid Fire I did with Ian Harrison from Recoil and Mike Seeklander, where we spent $35,000 in ammo in the first season and got canceled. Ah, oh, jeez. Uh, I wonder why. <laughs> no, maybe. <laughs> Could have something to do with it. You never know. Ish. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Ish, yeah. <laughs> that, that's um, great. All right. Oh, sorry, were you, was there anything else? No, no, no. That's you. You can find me. Search Michael Bain. I exist. Yeah, you are absolutely everywhere out there. We we so appreciate you spending time with us today. It's been awesome. You're a fascinating storyteller, and I've really had a good time. Well, I hope I didn't blather you to death. No, no absolutely you know, not. I know you're sitting over there going, "Well, shut the hell up." No, no, you're extremely interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, not once at any point did I ever feel that, think that, or 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 anything else. It's been truly awesome. Absolutely. Do you have some time to hang out with us? Sure. Or do you? Okay. Sure. So we'll continue into the show. Anytime you have anything to say, feel free. Uh, we're going to uh, take a quick commercial break and talk about our friends from Matador Arms. All right. So Matador Arms is known for their SKS accessories. Sean? They are. I, I'm not a big SKS guy. I don't know much about SKSs. I want an SKS, but that's kind of where they made their their bread and butter. They are a company that, that everything started up in Canada. They've got now uh, shipping warehouses and everything in the United States, and it's all coming here by the truckload is, is what I guess. But SKS is kind of where, where they made their, their name known. Yeah. And I see lots of pictures of, of stuff with SKS. Uh, Tony Simon actually has their Sabretooth chassis on his SKS, and he absolutely loves it. But if you do have an SKS or even some they, – they make stuff for a lot of other things as well – if they wanted to find that Ava and purchase it, where would they go? So that all they'd have to do is go to Matador Arms and then if you use the code GUNFUNNY10, you'll get 10% off. Absolutely. And, and they also sponsor our prank call, which I've been waiting for this moment. This is going to be hilarious. It, it, well, I don't know. <laughs> I needed a Halloween costume. <laughs> it's time for Prank Calls with Malcolm and Gertrude. Could I help you? Uh, yes, hello. I've just got a couple questions about some guns. All right, let's hear it. It's kind of weird. My wife is making me go to this fancy Halloween party, and I don't want to go, but I figured, well, maybe I'll just, uh, if I can figure out a way to build a costume around uh, a new firearm purchase, that, uh, you know, it, it would make it worth my while. So I was just wondering, kind of, are there any guns you have in stock that might work well with uh, a Halloween costume, or, like, what kind of Halloween costume would I buy to go with the gun? Man, you're going you're gonna to have to talk to somebody in the... In the, in the uh costume business i'm i'm 73 years old i not i had no idea <laughs> i mean do you have any you're the first guy that's ever asked us something like that do you have any guns that are, that are like famous from movies or something no we don't have any of that kind of uh, stuff i mean not like what they, what they prop guns or prop no no P-R-O-P prop guns we don't have anything like that a lot of ours are real stuff no 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 that no that's not what i mean i mean is there a gun like a style of gun that was used in a movie that I could then like go build a costume around. Like, uh, gosh, I don't, I, I don't really know Man, guns. I'm sure they are. We got about eight or hundred guns, but I don't even watch movies. So I'm, you know, I'm seventy three, and I'm, I, 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 uh, I'm six. We got, like I said, we got. Well, like I said, we got eight hundred guns, and if you want to come look at one of them? You think <laughs> it'll work in a prop for a prop? I, 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 I don't have any idea. I mean, just being honest with you. I'm sixty eight as well. Like, if you don't watch movies, maybe we could go to a movie together or something. It'd be fun. Oh, you ain't going. I go to sleep, so that's why I don't go to them. Oh, okay. I can't, I can't sit still that long. Dang. Uh, <laughs> do you have any, like, maybe old Western guns or something that might maybe John Wayne or Clint Eastwood used? 
Uh, probably do, yeah. But just not sure what it would be? Well, it's just going to be whatever you want, whatever we got. And uh, you're just asking a question. I just ain't real smart about what you're trying to – I know what you're – I got know what you're trying to do, but I don't know. All right. And I don't know what I don't know whether I'd wear a gun to a Halloween party anyway, because it may get you in trouble. <laughs> and I'm just being honest with you. I wouldn't. I wouldn't attempt to wear a gun to a Halloween party. I'm going to be in trouble anyway. My wife, she's a horrible banshee, uh, so it doesn't really matter to me at that point. All I can tell you is come down there and take a look. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that was done. I'm, I'm- I'm dressing up as a sexy handmaiden. That is such a great idea. I hear that the sexy costumes are coming back. <laughs> Just make sure nobody touches you. I, I'm going to dress up uh, as a sexy uh, cowboy, I think. And I uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, you could be a, a trucker. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we, we called, that was actually the third prank call that we made this morning. Cause literally the first two just hung up on me. Yeah. Or actually, well, the first one hung up. The second one just put you on hold for like ever. Yeah. So we hung up the first one that I was like, so I've got a question about a costume and he's all click. <laughs> I kind of felt bad for that guy cause he was so much older. <laughs> yeah. That's why I offered to go to the movies with him. I just, oh, yeah. I, I thought we could make a day of it and it would yeah. be fun. <laughs> Apparently not. But now Michael, I know you're, you're well associated and know these guys well. And that is Palmer 80. 80. <sighs> yeah. And they're great guys. Yeah, they are. We really love them. So, um, I don't know if they told you, but they are about to come out with the PF940CL, which essentially means that it's going to have like the, you know, if we're talking about Glock 19 grip with the 17 slide. So it's kind of like the opposite of the 19X. I told them as soon as you have it, Send me one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, honestly, I don't know why Glock didn't do that originally. Well, it just be, makes more sense. So I've been second guessing the whole time, but they, they just laugh at me and cover their ears with a hundred and a hundred thousand units sold. So obviously there's something I don't know, but yeah, this is actually kind of cool. The slide goes down, the, the, the grips, the harder part to conceal. So this, this is relevant to my interests. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's just crazy how you can literally just get all of these components and put together a really well working firearm. What's your thought uh, when you when you guys did it in the studio, Michael? Was it something that you did kind of the way it's recommended with with drill presses and, and mills and things like that, or did you just use kind of random tools? We actually we used a drill, so we we did actually do it with uh, the mill and, uh, but then after you know I'm going to do another one just using a pair of pliers and a Dremel. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah that's kind of that's what we did. It is yeah. I've done a bunch of eighty percent. AR-15 receivers and things like that with drill presses. And it's not that fun, but uh, the Polymer 80 with a Dremel and, you know, some snips and just a, a couple of files, awesome, yeah. easy, and kind of relaxing. It is. It's it's a lot better than playing Canasta. True yeah. that. True <laughs> that. So, Ava, Polymer80.com, if people want to save money, what do they do? Uh, so they just use the code GUNFUNNY and that gets you 10% off. All right. It's time to talk about some gear. Talk. Discussing popular guns and gear. Love it? Hate it? Find out now. All right. So I don't know if you're familiar with this one, Michael, uh, but we ca- we recently got in a KE Arms Searlink Technology Trigger. and that, That's a mouthful of words, but basically they kind of redesigned <laughs> the trigger a bit. And we, we took it out and shot it. I'll be honest. I don't have a ton of rounds through it, but I think the technology is kind of interesting. They basically removed the disconnector. Everything's done down below, below the sear. And there's, there's videos out there. Have you seen this? Are you familiar at all? 
I have seen it. I'm not familiar with it. I know that KA Arms has, has, has done a series of really fairly spectacular triggers. I would expect whatever they do to be very, very good. Yeah, it, it is kind of an interesting concept. I, I like it. One of the things that, that I think most people don't even think about or know is that because of the way that they've redesigned it, it doesn't matter if it's charged and ready to go. Uh, you can actually put it on safe no matter what, no matter what condition mm-hmm. the firearm's in, which is kind of nice when you're doing, uh, you know, malfunction clearing, things like that. We shot it. Ava, what'd you think? I personally, I loved it. And it's funny because looking back, we kind of got into like a little argument on the range. and It was a debate. <laughs> and so you and I were taking turns like, you know, okay, let me shoot it. And then I'm showing you with my finger that there's literally like it resets by itself. You're arguing with me that it doesn't and we're just sitting there. Yeah. But I personally, I really liked it. And I'm a bit of a trigger snob. No. Like I think if there's anything... I think that I can usually pick up um, when the trigger's kind of off, which I've done, you know, at certain events and stuff and when we're shooting different guns. So I would like to think that I'm I'm fairly knowledgeable about triggers. But, Sean, you thought that it didn't really – it, it didn't really Here, reset as I well thought. as you would have liked. No, that's that, that's not true. Here's here's what I thought. Okay, uh, don't argue with me in front of our new friend. I, you better just <laughs> – here's what I thought. Um, I liked it too. I thought that it shot well. I, I experienced no awkwardness at, at any point in time in the shooting. What I did notice is that the, the reset where the, where the trigger kind of pushes out up against your finger when you're waiting for the, the audible and tactile reset, that it felt less energetic to than a lot of the triggers that I'm used to. Now, functionally, does that have any, does that make any difference? Well, I don't know yet because I haven't shot it enough, but it didn't seem to at all. It was just interesting because of the new design and the way the triggers designed. I felt like the reset was a little bit less energetic and therefore it kind of just struck me uh, as different, not good, not bad, just different. So, so maybe did, you just need some more time with yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I felt like it, I felt like it shot well. I, I love when people kind of take something that has, is ubiquitous in the industry and they, and they make something new out of it. They put new ideas into it. It's happened a few times with triggers in the last five years, really. Mm-hmm. And this is just another one of those things. I, I've watched the videos. I, I know specifically what's different about it and how it works. And I think I think it's a good idea. I, I'm definitely excited to shoot it more. Yeah. So if you guys want to check out what we're talking about, just go to kearms.com. And it's called the Searlink Technology Trigger. Can I, can I throw in a trigger comment? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I was just getting ready I, to ask you. I think that in some ways... We've gotten, we've gotten a little bit over, over, overdone on triggers. And I, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm pissy with my triggers. You know, my triggers have to be adjusted just right. But I, more and more, I, I think that there's really not as much to it as we think there is. Uh, if you go through uh, Bill Rogers school, Rogers shooting school, Bill is adamant that if once you start, if you ride the trigger, that is you're riding the trigger to that sp- precise reset point. Bill says, if you do that, I'll break you of it. And, and he will, you know, it, uh, we did an experiment myself and Dave Spaulding, law enforcement trainer, Dave Spaulding is a great friend, great guy. We, we took the Gunsight 250 class, the basic pistol class together. Mm-hmm. We took it with out of the box Ruger SR9s. They had like 13 pound triggers on them. And, um, uh, we're like, oh, they're gritty. They suck. They're gritty. They suck. We both shot expert exactly the same score we shot with tuned 1911s. So it's kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway. So true. That's a small trigger thing there is it that sometimes sometimes we get carried away but I still do. I mean Bill Geisley has a lot of my money. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny how it works because I mean I have a I don't have any mil spec triggers in AR15s. Not not even one. But when I shoot one I'm like, "Oh yeah, that that doesn't feel awful." I mean, maybe a little bit more gritty, but I mean, 
there's just, there's not a huge difference. I did a video that really hit a couple of years ago about AR 15 trigger comparisons. And while I had one that I loved above all others, really they were all generally pretty much to the same to the point where I had to take all the numbers that we recorded and actually send it to a statistician because I couldn't find any, any kind of gotchas in any of them. He was able to come out and, and really show some patterns that I wasn't able to see ahead of time, but it just kind of goes to show that those, the, the, the differences are so small and minute. And I think honestly, a lot of them are just perception. I think very much so. I, I shoot single stage triggers because I, I come out of competition. I'm used mm-hmm. to single stage triggers. Yeah, me too. Uh, you know, but doubles, double, you know, the, the, the two stage triggers, probably the better trigger to have in a gun if it's not a competition gun. I mean, you can get away with things in a competition gun that no sane person would do on the street. <laughs> it's so true. The problem is though, I just, you know, if, if you paid two or $300, like you're going to shoot better. Oh, well, <laughs> if you spend that, that's two- always been my theory. I mean, I'll put the money down. I'll, I'll be Rob Latham in an hour and a half and, and $2,000 later. If you spend it on training, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I love it. All right. It is time to read some iTunes reviews. Uh, Michael Bain, would you like to read our iTunes reviews? I don't think he oh, has I can't see them. Oh, yeah. yeah he <laughs> and, you know, the question is whether I can read or not. <laughs> yeah. Sean, why don't you just stop trying to give away your duties? Okay. And, uh, Ava's on to me, Michael. I always try to get out of this. <laughs> but she never lets me get away with it. All right. So iTunes reviews, we really appreciate all the all the reviews that are coming in. So these ones are on Facebook. Excuse me. Uh, Taint M says, recommended. These are the best flavor of Doritos out right now. They have the right amount of zip but still have a great taste. I also love that you aren't overly flavored because getting all that sticky flavor coating on your fingers is kind of gross. <laughs> now, I said best flavor out right now because it's not the best ever. It's not even close to being best. The best ever was recently discontinued as it was a limited time only. That flavor is the wasabi flavor. Nothing will ever beat out wasabi. Bring back the wasabi Doritos. Hashtag bring back the wasabi. Hashtag make Doritos great again. Hashtag MDGA. So as you can tell our listeners, they're really intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's perfect. I mean, you know, that's important stuff. I mean, all this gun stuff, you know, comes and goes. But, but I mean, Doritos, yeah. yeah. I, I thought it was a metaphor first. Now I actually think he's talking about Doritos. I think, yeah. <laughs> Could be a simile. Maybe. I don't even know. Uh, Bobby P says, recommended. Great podcast. Ava and Sean are informative and entertaining. I listen to multiple podcasts on the Firearms Radio Network and I'm never disappointed. Okay. Truth be told, I only listen to support Tickles. <laughs> And that's great. That tickles, tickles is, is my dog. little dog. Yeah. <laughs> tickles needs the support. So keep mm-hmm. that up. Keep yeah. it up. Thank you. Brian N says recommended. Awesome show to start the morning with great information. Like the prank calls bring back when I got paid to do prank people. Awesome guests. Wait, he got paid to do prank people. Bring back when I got paid to do prank calls. I think he means just prank, <laughs> prank people. But. Yeah. There was a sexual innuendo there that I didn't want to miss. Uh, <laughs> awesome guest. Never dull moment. Very AK happy. Oh, good. If you're into that, that's just recently. Uh, I am not there as of yet. I'm new to the gun world. Just a big guy with a Ruger LC nine S one day. I'll get there, but thanks for the great show. Keep the pranks coming. Last one. Me, myself and Irene was effing hilarious. <laughs> nice. You know, what? I wish I could get reviews like that. That's all I can say. <clears throat> we, yeah, I, I love the reviews that kind of either a make no sense or B insult us. Uh, because they're the most fun to read. Yeah. R- right, Ava? So I know two of the guys that wrote reviews, they're actually our patrons. So it's 
tough because like how could I not pick them for the winners? But then there's that Brian N guy, so I don't want to leave him out. So all three people contact us. We're going to give you guys some all swag. Right. Do you think money grows on trees? Mm-hmm. This yep. is ridiculous. Well, okay, I'm sorry, but Michael said, you know, forget like act like you don't have money. You know, just throw it all out the window. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm living. I'm living the best life that I could live. I'm pretty sure that's not specifically what he said. He said, don't go. <laughs> don't give up. Just give, give up your house. That's all you have to do. <laughs> give up the apartment you live in, like a Chevy van. Boom. That's what I'm doing. I'm working on it. I love how out of what Michael said, I got like, don't give up adventure for security. And Ava's just like, give away all the money. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that's a good idea. It's almost (laughs) Halloween. If you, you know, leave a big bowl outside your, outside your apartment full of $1 bills. That's a great idea. All right. It is time to wrap this thing up. If people want to find us, they can go to gunfunny.com. We're on all the social media and anywhere that fine podcasts are served. One of the cool things is Patreons. Ava mentioned it just a minute ago. And Ava, what is the Patreon program? So basically, if you enjoy the show, um, you can pledge to support the show. I mean, even a dollar a month. And basically, that helps keep the show going. Just like with any show, there's expenses. We, you know, we have a studio, we have an editor, uh, so stuff like that. So that helps for you to support the show. Just even a dollar pledge gets you access to our Patreon only Facebook page, which we're always engaging in really good conversations, posting funny things, lots of giveaways, lots and lots of giveaways. In fact, I just had a bunch of holsters and I was like, Hey guys, who wants this? You know, I had like 20 holsters and I gave away. And then depending on your level of Patreon pledge, you can like our $25 Patreons, for example. Yeah, they, what, they get their names read on the show. And who are those people? Corbin Bonafide, Iraq Veteran 8888, and Adam Balzer from Charger Arms. And then we also have a king of the Patreon. So whoever is the king, we read whatever you want us to read. In this case, it's 2A Jewels. Yep. Sean, and, go ahead. Uh, they say, I've been manufacturing, not me personally, but they've been manufacturing fine jewelry since 1983. It's the attention to small details like our signature double row mill grain edge that makes our shell casings look like real jewelry instead of an arts and crafts project. No other company does it but us. I actually fully agree with that. Love mm-hmm. their stuff. And uh, thanks to them for being the king of the Patreons. Thanks so much to our editor, Kenny Ortega. We appreciate the great work that he does. And Ava, what do you have to say to Michael Bain? I just wanted to say, I know you're super busy. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to, you know, to spend with us. Like I really enjoyed you as a guest. You're, you're actually, you're really funny. Yeah. I I I I didn't expect that. (laughs) Sean and I were expecting you to be really serious. And I was like, well, what happens when we play the prank calls? (laughs) I don't know if he's going (laughs) to like it. (laughs) I should have been more serious, but (laughs) I had fun. And not only that, you guys gave me an excuse for a whole hour not to do my own podcast. (laughs) That is creative, you know, procrastination i love well it. hopefully we'll send some of our listeners your way and send they, all yours ours yeah <laughs> I, I, I will be doing that for sure <laughs> guys thanks for having me it was really fun absolutely Tru- and appreciate it once again where can our listeners find you www.downrange.tv okay awesome all right we're out of here thanks again and we will see you all next week Want to send feedback? Suggest a place to prank call? Tell us about a company or anything else. Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact.